This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we have two different reports on climate change. First, plastics and climate change. The problem isn't just all the plastic in the landfills or in the oceans. It's the manufacturing of plastics, a petrochemical. Zoe Carpenter will report. Also, ground zero for climate change is not just the Arctic and Antarctic ice fields. It's also America's inner cities, where the health effects of the carbon economy and global trade are felt most intensely. Ben Ehrenreich will explain. First up, guess who the Republicans think is a socialist? Trump Watch starts right now. Well, now it's time for today's political update. And for that, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's the nation's national affairs correspondent. And his most recent book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. It is a pleasure to be with you, my friend. Well, I want to uh, tell you about a letter that I got yesterday from the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee. I don't know why they're writing to me, but it's a fundraising letter that opened with a quote from Trump's State of the Union speech, tonight we renew our resolve that America will never be a socialist country, close quote. And this whole Republican fundraising letter is about fighting socialism. It asks me to sign the Citizens Against Socialism petition uh, so that we can, they say, stop America's left-wing faction from leading us down the road to socialism. And the leader of America's left-wing faction, according to the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee, is not Bernie. It's not Elizabeth Warren. It's not even AOC. It's Nancy Pelosi. Should we should we tell them Nancy Pelosi is not a socialist? <laughs> that is a really, really good question, John. That may be the, the greatest existential question you have ever asked. Um, and so we should probably pause and, and give you respect for it, because, uh, of course, Nancy Pelosi is not a socialist. Um, in fact, if you have uh, any sense of history, you will know that when Nancy Pelosi was elected in a special election to the uh, Congress back in the, I believe, 1980s, late 80s, mm-hmm. She defeated Harry Britt, who was a uh, uh, San Francisco Board of Supervisors member, longtime ally of Harvey Milk, who was, in fact, a national leader of Democratic Socialists of America. Mm. And so we absolutely know that <laughs> at, the, at the core level, at the core level. beat the socialists. <laughs> she was the non-socialist candidate. And she has served... Uh, pretty meticulously, as a non-socialist Democrat, right? You know, that's the way I remember it. Liberal Democrat. Yeah, that's the way I remember it. Okay, but here's where we get to the existential part, John, or the the more, you know, kind of deeper, more complex, and, you know, really to the heart of the matter thing. Do you really want to tell them? Um, (laughs) Because this is my theory about socialism. All right. The reason it's doing so well 
is that our Republican friends identify anything they don't like as socialism, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so when I wrote, I wrote a book, A History of Socialism in America, um, and uh, which still makes a fine holiday gift. And <laughs> the, in that book, I had my favorite, my favorite story from it was that I, I got a transcript from a Sean Hannity show uh, where he had uh, Sarah Palin on, and they were talking about weatherization, like a new program of Obama's to, to encourage people to weatherize their windows so cold doesn't get in and heat doesn't get out um, as an environmental initiative. And, and there were incentives to do that and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and Sean Handy goes, you know what that is? <laughs> and goes, oh, yes, I do. That's socialism. Oh, my God. And, and, and I thought, you know, everybody loves weatherization. Who doesn't want to be warm in the winter, warm. right? And so, I, so why would I correct them? I, I see what you, what you mean. Um, uh, you know, I knew turning to you, you would have the, so, some, some facts and then some deep thoughts on this. The, the, this Republican fundraising letter goes on to say that the socialists are bringing us, quote, massive, unsustainable federal debt, close quote. Is that true? Hmm. Well, um, it depends. Again, now I know they've identified Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> who isn't a socialist as a socialist. So maybe they're going deeper down this track mm. and also identifying Paul Ryan, <laughs> Nancy Pelosi's predecessor as a socialist, because wasn't it Paul Ryan who passed this absolutely economically unsustainable tax bill yeah. a year or so ago? Yeah. Yeah. And isn't that, by all accounts, like just feeding, <laughs> A, making people's taxes really unpleasant, um, but be feeding into um, all sorts of uh, that problems, right? Um, and so uh, if the socialists are at fault, they're socialists named Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. Well, the big... Now, yeah. admittedly, there's probably some Trump backers who believe that, so, you know. Okay. Well, the big news this week... Uh, about socialists in politics is that Chicago will soon have more socialists on its city council than any major United States city in modern history, five or maybe six after the elections this week. There are now more socialists on the Chicago city council than Republicans. How did this happen? Well, I mean, in fact, it's looking like, depending on, there's one race that's still in play where uh, a young Democratic socialist candidate may knock off one of the senior members of the city council. That's a, like a recount situation. Mm-hmm. I don't know how recounts play out in Chicago, but um, you could have as many as six uh, Democratic Socialists on the city council or people who are backed by the Democratic Socialists in this race um, versus, uh, I think, one Republican. Yeah. Now, one Republican on the Chicago city council is no surprise. That's a pretty common circumstance that they don't they don't do real well politically there mm-hmm. um but i think that the rise of uh democratic socialists people who are actually members of dsa and also people who may not be you know full-on dsa'ers but ran happily with the support of dsa um that this is sort of where the center of gravity is moving toward in uh, frankly a lot of cities across this country the fight is not between Democrat and Republican 
the fight is between uh, sort of neoliberal uh, and a neoliberal uh, kind of approach to governance, which has existed very much within the Republican Party as it's advanced austerity, but frankly has also existed within the Democratic Party Yeah, on one side versus um, progressivism, you know, and progressivism and even a next step into, you know, the, the traditional vision of a cooperative commonwealth where people actually, you know, do uh, seek to achieve some sort of economic democracy. And I think that's become very popular. And Chicago's probably ground zero for that because of the outgoing mayor of Chicago, and that's Rahm Emanuel. Rahm Emanuel um, has never been identified as a liberal or progressive, and he's certainly never been identified as a democratic socialist. Um, he's a very much a centrist, I would argue, uh, center-right political figure within the context of the Democratic Party. And um, he's been mayor there for eight years, uh, I think. If I, I hope I'm right on that. Uh, but for a substantial portion of time. And, um, and his governance has uh, really frustrated an awfully lot of people in the city. There's been uh, a great deal of support and uh, sustaining of uh, the downtown and of, you know, where the bankers all hang out. Uh, and a sense that not enough has not enough commitments gone to the neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And so I think people have seen a real time, real life play out of austerity uh, and of neoliberalism. And so if somebody's running for the city council saying, I'm not that, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, in fact, I'm the opposite of that, that has an appeal. So I think that's one of the reasons why Chicago, you've seen this traction in Chicago. Um, and one other element that I'll put into this, and this is very historic, if you're, if you're a historian of um, social movements, political movements, and particularly of democratic socialism in the United States, a very deeply rooted um, historic tradition in this country, much undercovered by our media, but if you're a historian of that, you know that it usually tracks with strong trade union uh, presence. Yeah. And Chicago has a very strong, uh, deeply rooted trade union movement. And I think a lot of folks within that trade union movement, especially the younger people coming in, uh, have been much more open to a democratic socialist approach. So much for Chicago. If we uh, go uh, north up uh, Lake Michigan a bit, we get to Milwaukee. Is it true that Milwaukee was run by socialists for much of the 20th century? Yes, it is, John. (laughs) Um, In fact, uh, from 1910 until 1960, uh, and you do the math, it's, you know, roughly half of the century, uh, with a little break, very small break in there, uh, Democratic Socialists held the mayoralty. Uh, a Democratic Socialist or a Socialist Party member named uh, Emil Seidel was elected in 1910. He sh- served for a little bit. And uh, then shortly after that, a uh, socialist named Dan Hone, uh, H-O-A-N, was elected mayor in 1916, and he served till 1940. Wow. Uh, 24 years as mayor. And then another guy uh, later in the 40s came in, Frank Seidler, who served for another 12 years as mayor. And so, yeah, they had this long socialist streak. If you can believe, uh, in Milwaukee, there was a time where the sheriff, the judges, the school board, the city council, and the mayor were all socialists. Not everybody, but, you know, socialists were represented on all those levels and all sorts of county jobs. 
there was a time when Milwaukee sent so many socialists to the Wisconsin state legislature that the socialists formed the opposition in what was then a very Republican state, not the Democrats. There were more socialists than Democrats in the legislature. Amazing. So how and, how bad was yeah. it? How bad was it for the citizens of Milwaukee to, to be under the heel of socialist rule? I know. John, I want to report to you it was a hellhole, not unlike Norway or Finland <laughs> um, you know, or Iceland or Sweden. Um, no, I mean, it was a, it, Milwaukee was a stunningly successful city. Uh, during much of this period, it had all the challenges that urban areas uh, historically have. But uh, the socialists, especially under Dan Holm, who served that 24-year streak, were amazingly successful on innovating in things like public housing, uh, public transportation, and of, of all things in those days, because remember, this is a time of transition in the U.S., public health and public safety. Hmm. And Milwaukee was regularly raided uh, as you know, healthiest big city, uh, most well-run big city. Time magazine put Dan Hone, the socialist mayor of Milwaukee, on the cover as an example of, you know, like a really great mayor. Um, and here's the interesting thing about it. Dan Hone was a real, and he believed in socialism, right? And he was no fan of banks and bankers. He didn't believe that socialists, a socialist government should take loans from banks that it should be or financiers it shouldn't be reliant on debt and deficits and so he ran milwaukee in in a balanced budget model and so milwaukee was regularly rated the most fiscally responsible or one of the most fiscally responsible cities in america amazing that did i just blow your mind Yes, yes, you did. And I believe that if, if our listeners want to find out more about this, they can read your article at The Nation magazine, uh, When Socialism Was Tried in America and Was a Smashing Success. John Nichols at thenation.com. At the John, we got about, in, in the time, five minutes we have left here, I yeah. want to change the focus to uh, uh, a new project of yours, which is to interview the Democratic uh, primary candidates on the questions of war and peace. Uh, it's a big undertaking, and you started with Beto. First, just tell us a few, uh, a little bit about what this project is about, and then let's talk about Beto. Sure. Um, the project I started is uh, one that, that, you know, I think make, just makes simple sense, and that is that the biggest power that a president of the United States has uh, and we're literally speaking on a day when Congress has voted on a Yemen resolution uh, that seeks to check and balance presidential war making. But the biggest power that a president has is uh, to take the country into war um, in an emergency situation. Uh, but you are supposed to get uh, authorization from Congress. We have not had presidents do that for a long time. So this presidential power that was already huge has been dramatically increased. We now have an imperial presidency, much like the kings of old, where presidents, you know, just decide to bomb places and invade or, you know, at least put troops on the ground uh, without congressional authorization quite often. And and even when there is some authorization from decades ago uh, to continue incursions, interventions, they just spend unimaginable amounts of money on a military industrial complex. And so I was concerned that in most of our presidential campaigns, our media coverage tends to be anecdotal. It's of the moment. Uh, 
what do you think about the bar reporter? What do you think about this? Or, you know, what do you think about your opponents, how your opponent looks or some crazy thing? And I thought, you know, there isn't a consistent standard of trying to ask these questions, these candidates, a simple question. And that is, how are you going to approach issues of war and peace? How are you going to approach that, that question of, you know, should we intervene around the world? Should we, uh, you know, do you need a declaration before you do something like this? What's your respect and regard for the Constitution? And frankly, what's your historical sense? I mean, how do you, how, when you look back, how do you think these things have worked out? Um, we won't get every one of them to answer all those questions. And, and it really, at the heart of it, it is it's not looking for talking points. It's looking for some sense of these people, where they're coming from. And so that's what I'm going to try and do. Great idea. And you started with Beto. Uh, this is a piece that's not yet published in the nation, but it's on the way. What did, uh, yeah. what did Beto tell you? I think people are going to be surprised um, uh, because I, I, was, I was very impressed uh, by the depth of his knowledge. He clearly had thought about these issues a lot. He was not prepared. I didn't, you know, I was going to interview him more broadly on things, and I brought this up in the middle uh, and he spoke at, at some length about uh, um, the historic U.S. interventions in Latin America in the 50s and the 60s and how the instability those those interventions brought to countries uh, and how that relates even to this day to uh, challenges in our relationships with other countries, but also even to some of the immigration and refugee issues that, that we deal with. He spoke about uh, Iran and Mossadegh back in the 50s uh, in, you know, a knowing way. So I, I was struck by uh, the fact that this is a guy who actually clearly has thought about this some, and he was extremely critical of, uh, of an interventionist approach uh, and quite conscious of uh, the failure of the Congress to assert itself as it should uh, so he was, it was a very interesting interview. I wouldn't, I, you know, I'm going to say that he's perfect on these things. And uh, I doubt that as I interview these folks that any of them are going to be perfect or where I'm at. I, I'm, you know, where, but it was instructive and it was a good start to this project. I expect to hear some other candidates who will do as well or better than he does. Um, so I, I don't think he's, you know, like necessarily the exemplar on this. I think some will do worse. I think some will dance around it, not you know really answer it. Uh, but I, I do I do hope during the course of the campaign to talk to all of them and to lay down a real standard of you know at the very least before you become president of the United States you ought to have been asked yes. and answered yes. a couple of questions about war and peace. A modest proposal from John Nichols. His piece, Beto on the Costs of War, will be at thenation.com in a few days. And his piece, When Socialism Was Tried in America and Was a Smashing Success, the story of Milwaukee. You can read it now at thenation.com. John, thanks so much for talking with us today. Always great to have you on the show. I'm honored to be with you, my friend. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, plastics and climate change. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues.
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, climate change and living in the city, Ben Ehrenreich will report on the case of Commerce, California. But first, we need to talk about the toxic consequences of America's plastics boom. For a report, we turn to Zoe Carpenter. She's the nation's associate Washington editor. She worked previously for Rolling Stone. She's appeared on MSNBC, CNN, and other media outlets. Zoe Carpenter, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, we hear a lot about plastic in the ocean. We've heard about this giant swirling patch of plastics in the Pacific what do we know about how much plastic waste ends up in the ocean? Uh, well, in short, there is a lot of it. Only about 9% of plastic that's used ever gets recycled, and the rest of it either gets burned or buried uh, or washes into watersheds and eventually out into the ocean where it breaks down into tiny little particles and um, poisons wildlife and creates all sorts of problems. Uh, a mid-range estimate is about uh, 8 million tons per year or one dump truck per minute of plastic um, is, is getting into the oceans every year. Well, I understand that Dow Chemical, ExxonMobil, Chevron Phillips, and other big plastic manufacturers have announced the Alliance to End Plastic Waste. They're going to spend $1 billion on recycling and cleanup. That sounds great. So... Is it time to thank them? <laughs> um, well, certainly um, there is a lot of cleanup that's needed, and, and everyone, uh, we should have all hands on deck for the cleanup. But if we only focus on cleanup, we're missing the biggest part of the picture here, which is the production of plastic and, and the fact that um, we're increasingly producing more and more plastic. Um, and there are no no plans for how to effectively prevent it from causing pollution. Um, and, and so cleaning cleaning things up, obviously, there's just so much plastic out there that you're never going to be able to clean all of it up, especially given the fact that these same companies that are, um, you know, loudly broadcasting their um, assistance for the cleanup efforts are now um, investing tens of billions of dollars into dramatically scaling up their plastics production in the United States and elsewhere. Currently, yep. there are over 300 petrochemical projects underway or newly completed in the U.S. alone. And $65 billion uh, to expand plastic production in the United States. So that's $1 billion to reduce plastics and $65 billion to produce more plastics. And that's just inside the United States. Uh, I thought plastic stuff came mostly from Asia. Well, we've heard that narrative repeated over and over, that, that the plastic waste problem is because of developing countries and their inadequate waste infrastructure systems. Um, there, there is a lot of plastic that's made in Asia, but it's also made in the Middle East, and increasingly it's being made right here in the U.S., and that is thanks to the fracking revolution, which has created a glut of raw material um, for the creation of plastic, specifically ethane gas, which can be turned into ethylene and then polyethylene, um, which is the building block for a wide range of plastic products from bottles to bags. 
Yeah, so I, I, until I read your article in The Nation, I had only a vague idea of where plastics come from and, and who makes plastics. You mean that Exxon and Chevron make shrink wrap and hair clips and fake ferns and, I don't know, spatulas? <laughs> sort of. They make the precurs- precursors for those uh, products. So um, when you drill an oil or a gas well, uh, there are natural gas liquids that come along with the petroleum or the natural gas that you're getting out of that well. Um, and those natural gas liquids include ethane. Um, and you can crack it, as they say in the industry, um, break apart the molecules using heat and pressure and reconfigure them to form um, plastic resin. So um, often that comes out as the form of little pellets, plastic pellets, like what you might find inside of a Beanie Baby. Um, and those pellets can then be shipped off to other refineries um, or to other manufacturing facilities where it can be turned into a variety of plastic products. So Exxon, Shell, um, those companies are known as you know major integrated oil companies because they have both the sort of typical oil and gas um, operations that we normally associate with them, but then they also have these chemical divisions. And those chemical divisions, which includes the, the plastic manufacturing, are becoming an increasingly important source of their, of their business and of their profits. So there's fracking and there's cracking. And it's the cracking... Exactly. <laughs> I'm learning. I'm learning. The cracking releases chemicals into the atmosphere, and it turns out these are really toxic chemicals. And People breathe them in places like Portland, Texas. It's a place that you went to. Tell us about Portland, Texas. Sure. So Portland is just north of Corpus Christi, um, and it's sort of on the fringes of what has historically been a pretty heavy industrial area. But it's always been just slightly removed from that industry in Corpus Christi. Uh, and now ExxonMobil, in partnership with the Saudi Basic Industries Corporation, which is one of the largest um, petrochemical producers in the world, they're building what will be the largest ethane cracker um, in the world right next to Portland. And, but it's, you know, it's right outside the city limits, which is convenient because it means that the city council um, had no say over the permitting for it. It's on unincorporated county land. Um, And residents there are really concerned about the health effects from this facility. Um, Ethane crackers do emit um, all sorts of possible carcinogens um, and known carcinogens, sulfur dioxide, volatile organic compounds, um, and nitrogen oxides, which can combine to form ozone smog, and then carcinogens including benzene, formaldehyde, um, for example. So at low concentrations, um, these facilities carry risks of eye and throat irritation and respiratory problems and headaches, for instance. And then at um, high concentrations, um, the risks are more serious damage to vital organs, the central nervous system, and, and cancer. And I think, you know, if you look at a place like um, southern Louisiana, the corridor in between Baton Rouge and uh, New Orleans that's known as Cancer Alley, you can really see how that high concentration of petrochemical facilities plays out in terms of its effects on the local population. And you also talk to people in, uh, in, in Cancer Alley uh, about what it used to be like there before the chemical plants opened. What, what did they do there in, in the old days? 
Um, well, it was an agricultural area. Formerly, it was a plantation area, um, but uh, just a couple of generations ago, uh, there were lots of black landowners who farmed and fished along the banks of the Mississippi River. Much of that land has now been taken over by big industrial facilities, including plastics and other chemical manufacturers. And, and many of the census tracts in a couple of counties there have elevated cancer risks and um, now there are more facilities that are slated to go in, including one um, that will be operated by Formosa Plastics, which is a Taiwanese company that has a um, pretty concerning safety record in, at its other facilities in the U.S. So where is the Environmental Protection Agency in all this? Shouldn't they be protecting the environment? Yeah, well... Um, <laughs> I think we've seen a lot of inaction under the Trump administration, and a lot of these facilities actually are being permitted by state agencies. And so it's the state agencies um, that really have the most say uh, over the establishment of these kinds of facilities. And in states like Texas and in Louisiana, where most of these facilities, these new plastics facilities are being proposed and being built, um, the state environmental agencies have a reputation for being very cozy with industry um, and for being uh, loath to uh, prevent the permitting process from, from going forward. Now, aren't some of these areas with chemical plants <clears throat> on the Texas Gulf Coast, uh, isn't this the area that flooded after Hurricane Harvey and the floods reach the chemical plants and the, the toxic ponds there? Yeah, and that's something that residents in some of these communities that are um, at ground zero for this new plastics boom are really concerned about. Um, the hurricane forced many chemical plants to shut down um, in 2017, and when these plants shut down, they often emit large quantities of chemicals. And so after Harvey, there was an estimated 1 million pounds of XX excess toxic emissions drifting into neighboring communities. And since this area is prone to hurricanes, um, that's certainly something of continued concern for residents. Well, let's talk about the resistance to the petrochemical industry and the cancer threats it poses on the Texas and Louisiana, Louisiana, <clears throat> on the Texas and Louisiana Gulf Coasts. Well, you know, the resistance... Um, is growing, uh, certainly in communities like Portland um, and in Louisiana's St. James Parish, which is a majority black community spanning the Mississippi River. And the, the issue here is that many of these decisions about the siting of these facilities and the beginning of the permitting process started before the communities were even really aware of what was going on. Um, in, in Texas, for example, in Portland, Texas, um, Exxon was starting, was going through the process of searching for the site um, with help from the governor's office before anyone in town even knew what was happening. They were using a code name for the project called Pro Project Yosemite. So there, is, there are lots of concerns about the transparency in these big decisions that are being made. Many small towns that um, are greenlighting projects that will affect entire regions. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Zoe Carpenter about plastics and climate change. Uh, the, um, the petrochemical companies, not only have they formed the alliance to end plastic waste, uh, they, they also have responded to critics, um, uh, and they say uh, the plastic they produce goes into solar panels and wind turbines and electric vehicles. And so 
we should be thanking them for their contributions to to uh, the alternative energy uh, industry and infrastructure. Uh, what what can you tell us about the role of uh, plastics in electric vehicles? Yeah. Well, it's certainly true that we use plastics all the time, and and plastic is certainly a very important part of of modern life, right? I mean, life saving medical devices, for example, but that's that's only part of what we use plastics for. Um, the biggest growth in terms of demand for plastics is for packaging. Wait a minute. Wait. Wait a minute. Packaging? Not not even spatulas and 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 pro, uh, home products? Just packages? Nope. We're talking about packaging. So the oh. shrink wrapping around a box of mushrooms, the bag that the shirt that you ordered off of Amazon comes in, especially with the rise of e-commerce. There is so much plastic being used to wrap all of the other stuff that we're mm. consuming. Mm. Um, and so that's a real challenge. Much of that, that wrapping is single-use plastic that it can't be recycled. Um, it's not economical to recycle a lot of plastics. And so there's a lot of work being done um, to try to figure out how to make uh, plastic, how to make recycling economical. Even if you do that, though, there are still going to be places um, where they're just not going to have the infrastructure to do that. It's going to be decades before you can really scale up recycling um, at, at a level that it's affordable. I think, you know, we're seeing right now a crisis of um, recycling infrastructure where, for example, countries in Asia are refusing to take the United States' plastic to recycle it. Um, so even in the U.S., a, a super developed country, we don't even have enough infrastructure to recycle our own plastic. Um, so I, I think a lot of people are, are starting to push more and more for the producers of plastic to take responsibility for the full cost of collecting and recycling the products that they're selling. And it's this is a little bit analogous to climate change, which many of these same countries are, are sorry, many of these same companies are implicated in. They're not asked to pay the externalities of the product that they're selling. And so how do we force them to actually pay for the full damage of what their products are, are doing to the environment? In the story of uh, petrochemicals, uh, petrochemical companies' uh, plastics production gets worse. Uh, we've been talking about the uh, Gulf Coast of Texas and, and Louisiana, but I learned from your article in The Nation that petrochemicals are being described as the answer to the economic problems of Appalachia, that the coal mines closing uh, have opened the door to a whole new uh, industry uh, in the former coal country, petrochemicals. Yeah, this is a really big development that I think has flown below the radar for the past couple of years. Um, the Marcellus Shale, which runs under parts of Pennsylvania and Ohio, is one of the biggest fracking hotspots in the country. And so there's a lot of ethane coming out of the Marcellus Shale. Um, and so from an industry perspective, it's an obvious region in which to scale up plastic production since there's so much of the raw material right there. Um, and so what they're talking about is a brand-new petrochemical corridor that will run down the Ohio, upper Ohio River Valley. Um, and from the industry's perspective, this is uh, you know, a bright new economic opportunity to replace some of what steel and coal has left behind. Um, but a lot of people look at what's happened in Louisiana and in Texas and say, hey, we don't want a brand new cancer alley in the Ohio River Valley, and let's stop and 
stop and think about what we're really doing here and how it's really going to deepen our investment in the fossil fuel economy and, and is that really the way of the future. Um, so it's a really interesting debate happening there. There are several very large new cracker plants that are being built. Um, the most far along of them is being built by Shell in Beaver County, Pennsylvania. Uh, and the idea that uh, new cracking plants are going to bring a massive influx of new jobs is also false. If you, I once visited the Shell uh, refinery in, in, in Houston, and it's almost completely automated. There were no people to be seen anywhere on the tour. Yeah, like with other fossil fuel projects, there are always promises of thousands of jobs. Um, but upon closer inspection, most of those jobs are temporary construction jobs. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's definitely a valid concern in many of these communities um, to increase employment and, and to boost their economy. Um, but many of the people, the local activists who are pushing back against this new petrochemical buildout, are pointing to the example of their northern um, or their neighbor in New York, um, which has gone kind of the opposite direction and is putting a lot of investment into solar and other renewable. Um, infrastructure and, and jobs, and um, so the people in some people in Pennsylvania are asking the question: Is doubling down on fossil fuels really the only way to boost our economy? Especially since that kind of reliance on the fossil fuel industry hasn't really paid off for us in the past. And, and just in our last minute or two here, let's talk a little bit more about what is being done. I know, as you say, New York State is pushing renewables. They've also banned uh, fracking. What, uh, what else is on the horizon of, of uh, activists? Well, there are several lawsuits um, pending uh, in Texas, for example, challenges to the permitting process. So that has yet to pay, play out. Um, one of the issues here is that um, there's been sort of a piecemeal permitting process, and you can see that really clearly in Pennsylvania. So um, one facility will get greenlit, and then it turns out that there's this huge pipeline that goes with it, and the pipeline permitting process is completely separate. And so it's a bit hard to challenge this entire huge build-out that's happening when everything is being done in a very piecemeal individual Way, but I think you know activists are, are trying to challenge individual projects and figure out what are the really key pieces of in infrastructure um, that we can challenge that are kind of integral to this whole whole project. Um, and obviously political pressure, but um, it's definitely a tough fight. There's a lot of a lot of money behind these projects, and there's unfortunately not a lot of attention in many cases on what's really going on in the scale of these uh, developments. Yeah, Exxon uh, Mobil, the most profitable and largest corporation in the history of the world, I believe. And many of these towns that um, companies like Exxon are coming into are, are tiny. In Pennsylvania, um, the fate of a facility that will affect the entire region was largely decided by three supervisors in a township with a population of under 500 people. Mm. Zoe Carpenter, she wrote the cover story for The Nation on the toxic consequences of America's plastic Plastics Boom. It's a major work of reporting on a crucial issue. You can read it at thenation.com. Zoe, thanks for this report, and thanks for talking with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, climate change and living in the city. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. <laughs> 
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali. Now it's time to talk about climate change and living in the city, in particular, a city called Commerce. Ben Ehrenreich has a report. He writes about climate change for the nation, and he's the author most recently of The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine. We, we reached him today out in the desert north of Joshua Tree. Ben Ehrenreich, welcome back. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. Well, you open your most recent report on climate change for the nation in an unlikely place, a working-class city southeast of L.A. called Commerce. I would have said it's in the belly of the beast, but the activists you talk to there don't like that phrase. Uh, tell us about Commerce California. Yeah, I think, you know, when we, we tend to think of, of places in which you can see the effects of the fossil economy and climate change, you might think of Mozambique, you might think of Bangladesh, you might think of um, Haiti, you might think of Central America or the Lake Chad Basin in Africa um, or the Sahel. But I think what struck me um, on thinking about commerce, um, which is in southeast L.A. and is a heavily industrial community, um, was how it's very much been in the crosshairs of the fossil economy for, you know, really for generations now. Um, it is um, it in the communities around it, places like um, like Southgate, like Vernon, um, are um, residential areas, mainly, you know, um, mainly working class, mainly Latino, mainly immigrant, um, but that have been largely are not thought of by city and, and county and state planners in terms of who lives there, um, but ter solely in terms of their in industrial um, use. And mainly that has to do, in the case of, of commerce, with transportation. Commerce is right off the 710. Um, there's a big Union Pacific rail yard there. There's another uh, BNSF rail yard right up the street. Um, and those are intermodal yards where the containers that come in um, by the hundreds of thousands into the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach are put onto trucks, um, which go up the 710 freeway to those intermodal yards where they're then um, put onto trains and brought out into the rest of the country. Let me um, ask you, let me interrupt here to ask you, what's in the containers? Everything, all the junk that, uh, that, that we love to buy. I'm actually, I, I defined a place with, uh, with good cell phone reception. I'm sitting in front of a, a Walmart on Highway 62 right now. <laughs> okay. And probably everything in that store, um, or if not everything, a lot of it, um, came in on, on containers um, from factories um, in Asia. Um, so, you know, this is, this is sort of how our, our economy works. Um, is there's there's cheap labor overseas and there is cheap fuel, um, which allows all of these goods um, to be shipped, uh, you know, burning diesel fuel um, into our ports where it's then put onto trucks and onto trains, um, also burning diesel fuel and then shipped around the country. Um, so all of the 
all of the, you know, from the car you're driving to the parts that are used to replace the parts in the car you're driving to the clothing you may be wearing to, um, you know, the things you cook with and the things that you're cooking. Um, a lot of this stuff is coming um, through the ports of L.A. and Long Beach. I think L.A. and Long Beach process 40 percent of the container traffic coming into the U.S. and the whole country. Just an enormous quantity of goods. Now, we're um, told we're told that these are uh, this is, you know, the basis of the economy of much of southeast L.A. and that these are uh, crucial uh, to the lives of the working class people whose jobs are centered around uh, the containers and moving the containers out to America's other Walmarts. Uh, how do these containers connect uh, to the carbon economy and to the capital economy? Well, I, you know, those containers got to move, and they're moved only with diesel fuel. Um, and the fact that we have this entire economy, which is entirely reliant on goods moving so easily and cheaply, all of this is inconceivable um, without massive use of, of fossil fuels. Um, and, uh, you know, I, th I think one of the things that makes commerce and communities like it really interesting is that when we use the buzzwords that economists like to use and that have entered, you know, all of our skulls um, through a sort of process of media osmosis, words like growth, which yeah. we, we are, are trained to assume is a good thing. You know, what growth means, economic growth means, it means those containers moving around. It means people buying and selling. It, mean, it means, uh, you know, retail sales going up at the Walmart. It means goods making it into people's homes and moving around the country. Um, this is the economic model that we work with, that, that growth is this sort of unquestionable good. Um, but what it means for, you know, very directly for communities like commerce and the communities around it, um, and slightly less directly for all of us um, in terms of climate change, um, is shortened lifespans, um, that the possibilities of, of people's lives are, are foreclosed um, by maladies that could otherwise be avoided, things like asthma, things like higher rates of cancer um, that communities like commerce have been dealing with for generations. You know, I, I have a, a pet peeve about the diesel engines on the trains. Um, it's, a, it's a small thing, but they don't shut off the diesel engines. They run 24 hours a day uh, in those in those train yards, and the diesel engines produce a tremendous amount of air pollution, which goes all over Southern California, but of course, most intensely on the people who live in commerce. Yeah, I, I think the the calculation of the railroads is that it is cheaper to leave their engines running all the time than to shut them off and start them up again. Um, so in those rail yards, um, there are locomotives idling. And if you've ever been to commerce or the communities around it, um, you know, some of those railroads are really right up against people's backyards. Um, so you can have locomotives just a few feet from yards in which, um, you know, kids are playing, um, which means huge amounts of, uh, you know, the technical term is particulate matter. Um, but in LA, we all, we all know it. It's the, you know, the black gunk that gathers on your, um, on your windows, on your window cells. Um, it's the stuff that makes it hard to breathe in LA. It's the stuff that makes the, the air so, uh, so gummy and, and foul. Um, and it, uh, you know, has a, a severe effect on people's health and lifespans. So when you went to Commerce California, <coughs> excuse me, when you went to Commerce California, 
you uh, you talked to activists in a group called East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice. First of all, what is the East Yard? East Yard is the railroad yard, the Union Pacific Yard, um, which is in the City of Commerce. Um, and it's one of these intermodal yards. Um, and it's, it has a, a huge amount of real, real estate. Um, and uh, a lot of people are not aware of the extraordinary like authority and independence that the railroads won in the American West. Um, so that, you know, they have their own police forces. Um, they have, they have extraordinary amounts of power, um, you know, both financial and, and institutional. And tell us about the, the, uh, East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice. What kind of group is this? What are the pe- who are the people? What are they like? Yeah, East Yard. It's a it's a small grassroots group. I've I've known the uh, the founder for for many years. Um, they're now in the hands of um, a um, super dynamic uh, director named Mark Lopez. Um, and East Yard has, from a, an absolutely grassroots community level, um, been trying to organize people in the neighborhood, um, basically to you know on. on matters that are their life and death there um, on trying to reduce the amount of pollution um, that is pumped into their air. And this is, um, you know, it's an extremely basic kind of organizing, and it's a kind of organizing that's, that's proved absolutely necessary because at every level of government, until uh, residents in communities like Commerce start making a lot of noise and start, you know, uh, showing up at meetings and insisting that they are, be taken account of, nobody takes account of them at all um, at the local level, at the county level, um, at, the, at the state level, um, that, you know, at every level of government, um, whether it's the railroads uh, or the ports or the trucking companies um, or the, the big polluting industries, um, nobody is thinking much about the, the people and the ways of, the, of these industries. They're just thinking about keeping the money flowing. Um, so, it's, you know, over the years, uh, East Yard has, um, through consistent uh, organizing, by being there, by uh, demanding that their voices be heard, has become a, a, enough of a player that, you know, all of these local planning agencies know they have to take them into account. And um, and, and what what do they uh, propose about dealing with the the immediate crisis of of air pollution and and the longer term issues of the carbon based economy? You know, there have been a number of fronts that they've been working on over the years. Uh, one has been you know working on issues exactly like some of the things we've been talking about in terms of uh, locomotives idling in the in the yards. Another has been um, fighting the expansion of the 710, um, which has been a you know a big push by uh, you know all parts of, of local government for years now um, to, to you know have less less trucks and less diesel trucks going through their neighborhoods. Um, you know, but they're also working on on you know the kind of issues that we associate with uh, with very different neighborhoods, like trying to get you know bicycle paths in and trying to get green space in. Um, and I think the bigger picture for you know, which was interesting and exciting to talk to uh, Mark Lopez about, was things like you know talking about energy independence and his sort of constant insistence that whatever plans um, people come up with to deal with the to deal with climate change, whether it's the Green New Deal or, or we call it something else or it's something else entirely, that it not just be a deal made between corporations and government. 
um, because that kind of deal has been made for for many generations in that in, in in this country, and that kind of deal not just in this country, uh, and that kind of deal always leaves people like the people in commerce out. It always you know completely bulldozes over, um, you know communities of color, um, immigrants, uh, working class communities. Um, and you know, one of the things that he talks about is is energy independence and and and, and communities um, taking control of their own of their own energy resources. Um, you know, as as he put it, there's a um, in Wilmington, which is not just outside of the area that they work in, which is where the big refineries in. You know, people always joke that you know you get a job in the refineries so that you can move out of the refine out of Wilmington, so you can move far away from them. Um, and you know, this people should be able to stay with their where they are without you know having to risk their lives and their children's lives to do so. Um, and for that to happen, people people who live in these places have to um, be taken into account. Seems like the combination of the port of L.A. and the transportation hub would uh, uh, would make for a uniquely bad combination uh, in terms of local pollution. Is there anything like Southeast L.A. anywhere else in the United States? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I, you know, I think L.A. is the uh, as as a port is is. Uh, you know, like I said, the the biggest one. But I think places like the Houston area, uh, where there's both a um, a major port and um, is a major hub in the oil industry and the refining um, industry, um, faces similar, you know, very similar issues. There was a um, just, I guess it was now about two weeks ago, there was a fire in one of the refineries there. Um, which uh, people were told, for, I believe it was for more than a week, to not leave their homes because there were talk, you know, deadly levels of benzene in the air uh, released as a result of this accident in one of the refineries. Um, you know, so th- I think there, there are neighborhoods like Commerce um, scattered in industrial areas all over the country. Um, and I think all of them share this kind of uh, and I hesitate to use this word, but privileged view of how our economy works and doesn't work. Um, you know, that if you if you live in a place like Commerce, you have an understanding of the functioning of the fossil economy uh, that many of our you know uh, members of the pundit class and policymakers with uh, you know the most expensive elite educations uh, can't come close to. Um, you have no choice but to understand how the system works. One other thing we haven't talked about, we talked about Southeast L.A. as primarily a transportation and warehousing hub for the port of L.A., but isn't this still an area where there are active oil wells still pumping away? Yeah, in West Long Beach, um, you know, if you drive up to Signal Hill, you'll you'll see them. Um, and really every aspect of, of the um, the carbon economy can you can you can see from that part of LA County um, whether it's the refineries in Wilmington or the pipelines just before they go underground um, or the uh, oil derricks uh, in West Long Beach and Signal Hill um, or the you know the, these transportation networks that we've been talking about in, in commerce um, at pretty much every level you can you can get a view of how the um, how the carbon economy is working on the ground and what its immediate consequences are for people you know even before we start talking about global warming.
Uh, the immediate consequences in, in, include uh, oil trucks blo- uh, catching fire on the freeway, I believe. Yeah, this was uh, a few years ago. Um, I think it's happened twice in commerce over the last 10 years or so. Um, the In the worst case, uh, an oil truck, I, b- I believe it was on a... Um, on an overpass, um, and it caught on fire, and half of the truck was hanging over the overpass, dripping molten crude um, onto the streets below. A number of parked cars, uh, you know, were lit on fire. The neighborhood was, you know, looked like uh, absolutely apocalyptic for 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 many many hours. Because um, there's also oil coming that's leaving um, through the port of Los Angeles or, or actually going towards the refinery um, coming down from the oil fields in the central Valley around Bakersfield um, is also passing through these neighborhoods. Um, and so those kinds of accidents um, do happen as they do in, in other neighborhoods in places like Houston. Ben Ehrenreich, his article for the nation is titled the road to climate <clears throat> the road to climate catastrophe runs through a city called commerce. But if we listen carefully, the solutions to the climate crisis also come from commerce. You can read it at thenation.com. Ben, thanks so much for talking with us today. Uh, It's always a pleasure, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, John Nichols, talked about Republicans and socialism. Zoe Carpenter reported on plastics and their toxic threat. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks also, as always, to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.